Good evening. Last time we finished off with the golden age of Spain. Tonight's lecture is entitled Rashi Tosus and the Development of Ashkenazi Jewry. Hope everyone has a source sheet. Just remember, hold any questions or comments till after the lecture. And tonight I'm going to have a disclaimer. Um, because we'll be talking about France and I am one of the few people in the show that does not speak French. I take no responsibility for pronunciation. I, I, you know, everyone has to know what they're good at, and uh, I'm at a severe disadvantage over here. Okay. The first question we have to ask after last week's lecture uh, two weeks ago's lecture, the, la- the last lecture, where we discussed the four captives, we discussed the migration of the Jewish people leaving Babylonia, as we discussed last lecture, we discussed them going to Spain, going to North Africa, going to Italy. We didn't see any Jews going to France or Germany. We, don't, we ha- did not discuss any Jews in Western Europe. So the obvious question to begin with is, how did the Jews end up in France and Germany? Indeed, Jewish legends discuss Jews being in France and Germany already at the time of Ezra. One of the kinnis, one of the lamentations that we say on Tisha B'Av is for the cities of spires, worms and mines which were destroyed in the Crusades and we mention that at the time of Ezra Ezra when the Jewish people came back to rebuild the second temple sent a letter to the cities called Shum spire worms in Magnitia mines and they sent a letter back that although we wish to be in the great Jerusalem we're happy in our small Jerusalem in these cities and that's why they were destroyed that's one legend another legend and this is actually brought in a footnote in Rashi in Shoftim is that there were Jews in France and Germany in Ashkenaz already before the time of the prophet Shmuel going way back that some of the children of Binyamin who were killed in the civil war of the Jews for those who don't know that we'll have to go back to prophets at a different time a hundred of them migrated to France and Germany. At any rate, there is no historical evidence of Jews in these periods in France and Germany, but that's, there's no, that doesn't mean anything because there's very little historical evidence at all for those periods. But there is definitely historical evidence of Jews going along with the Romans as the Romans conquered Gaul and Jews being the merchants by the lines and starting towns and developments in the Roman Empire even before the advent of Christianity. In the early Middle Ages, 5th century, 6th century of the Common Era, Gaul, Germany were inhabited primarily by the Vandals, the Huns, the Franks, the Goths, all Germanic barbarian tribes 
And the Jews in France and Germany, because it was one geopolitical entity at the time, France and Germany were at one point one country under the uh, auspices of the Franks eventually, they were in relative tranquility. They were one community, they they got along with their neighbors, relatively speaking, um, the first king of the Franks, Clovis I, who Unify the kingdom who's actually converted to, to Catholicism, which, and he eventually would force other Germanic tribes to take not, um, the Aryan Catholic, Aryan Christianity, which I discussed earlier, which was a belief that Jesus was a prophet and not part of the Trinity, but he actually was an Asinian Catholic, and he was actually the first of the great German barbarians who believed that. Nevertheless, he was relatively amicable to the Jews, and Jews got along. So much so, that the Third Council of Orleans in 539 found it necessary to warn Christians not to hang around with Jews, not to buy into Jewish superstitions. Um, Indeed, in Paris, in the middle of the 6th century, in the city, uh, the Isle in the middle of the city, what is it called? Ili de la Cite, again, I take no responsibility, but it was a huge synagogue in the middle of that island which was torn down as Catholicism became entrenched and rebuilt as a church. In 629, King Dagobert basically gave the Jews a choice they would have many times. The next lecture, and I'm not going to deal with this at length, the next lecture will be entitled Crusades, Blood Libels, and the Black Plague. Well, I will deal with these, all of these issues much more in detail. But in the beginning here, already Jews were given a choice, the cross or death. And Dagobar basically gave them that choice, not even really offering them a option of um, expulsion. So by the mid-7th century until 150 years later, we will find no more trace of a Jewish presence in North and Central France. However, in Southern France, in an area called Septimania, which will eventually be called Provence, there will be a very large Jewish community. And already in the 6th and 7th century, in Narbonne and other cities, we find um, evidence of established, developed Jewish communities. The situation in France in general remained perilous until the reign of Pepin, the father of Charlemagne. Pepin the Short invited the Jews to come, and slowly a small amount of Jews trickled in. But it was his son, the most, probably, arguably the most famous king of the Middle Ages, Charlemagne, who invited the Jews to come in full force. Charlemagne granted the Jews parallel freedoms to what they had in the times of the Roman Empire, which we had discussed previously. Charlemagne saw Jewish Spain. He saw how the Moors had integrated the Jews. And he became envious of that situation. He saw that the Jews were the middle class. That the Jews developed Spain. As we discussed in the last lecture, Charlemagne wanted to replicate that in his Frankish Empire. So Charlemagne, not only did he invite Jews, he actually sent messengers to the Caliph in Baghdad to send him Jewish rabbis, knowing that if you have rabbis, you'll get laymen as well. And in fact, Jews started becoming part of the empire under Charlemagne. 
Um, there are many Jewish merchants at that point. In fact, Charlemagne depended upon Jewish merchants. This would be the beginning of Jewish merchants trading from the Frankish Empire all the way into Spain, to the Moors, and into the Arabic lands because the Jews had these connections. The Christian world, even before the Crusades, there was a disconnect with the Muslims. But as we discussed in the last lecture, the previous lecture with, uh, talking about Islam, there was always trade going on. Who were the perfect merchants? The Jews. Because if a Jew in Paris could talk to a Jew in Jerusalem or a Jew in Baghdad or a Jew in North Africa and there was trust, there was credit. There was, a Jew can go places and buy things where a Christian was not able to. Jews also became money lenders. Now they would not be really invested in, into money lending until the 12th century when the Third Lateran Council of the Christians forbade Catholics to money lend for one another. Well, now they had to still have an economy. Right? It's always you can have an ideal and then you have to deal with the real life. Well, they forced the Jews to money lend. Some Jews did it willingly, but they were also forced um, to money lend. Charlemagne granted the Jews privileges. Now this is very important to know because we, we have a couple of lawyers, a couple of budding attorneys in, in here. We're used to our constitution and every American cares about their rights. You know, whether you're on the right or the left, you have your rights. What the rights are is a matter of debate. But we all have rights. In the Dark Ages, in the Middle Ages, no such thing as rights. No one had a right to anything in the world of Rome or in the world of the Franks or in the world of the Normans. You had privileges. Charlemagne granted the Jews privileges. A Jew couldn't just settle where he wanted. A Jew couldn't just do what he wanted. You had to have a privilege and you had to negotiate your privileges. So Charlemagne negotiated privileges with the Jews. And in fact, for that Christian Europe world, his privileges were the most expansive. He gave them privileges to trade, to be involved in, as merchants, to be involved in, in, as the middle class. He allowed them to um, employ Christians, but they had to be off on Sunday. Um, they were not allowed to trade in certain things, which was wine, grain, or cur currency. However, they were given general privileges. So much so, that when the Normans first came to Gaul, they thought they were Jewish merchants. And they assumed that the Normans were Jewish merchants. Charlemagne's son, Louis the Fair, was faithful to the principles of his father, and he granted strict protection to the Jews. And we'll see that there were, were those who already, again, we have to remember that the average priest and deacon following you know, the lead of the popes were certainly not favorable to the Jews. The um, Moravian, Carolinian empires in France, they looked at the Jews for political and financial reasons. They were not looking on religious terms. Charlemagne did not view the Jews as religiously in his favor. He viewed them as a good pawn to build up his empire. Okay? So he would all, there would always be opposition from the religious leaders. So Louis the Fair gave them complete more privileges than his father. This aggravated one of the most famous French leaders of the Middle Ages, Agobard, 
who had drushes, he had sermons, preaching against the Jews, that the Jews live in brick houses and their wives dress like the nobles' wives. How are they able to be in France? Why are they privileged in France? They should not be here. There are Frenchmen who say the same thing today. Right? But that was already in the, the, the ninth century. And he was particularly upset when a famous incident of an individual called Bodo. Bodo was a French deacon who looked into Christianity, Catholicism, and saw and felt it was degenerate, converted to Judaism. Now, for those who are unaware, conversion until the 20th century, I gave a lecture on conversion for the Jewish Study Network a couple of years ago. I spoke once on Shavuos here about conversion. A conversion was not at all a reality until the 20th century. And I said at the time, one of the reasons was, whether you were in the Muslim world or in the Catholic world, it was a death sentence. If you converted in Iran, even a thousand years ago, you were, your life was in danger. If you converted in Syria a thousand years ago, and you left the Muslim faith, your life was in danger. Just as much so in the Catholic kingdom, that was heresy. Bodo converts to, to Judaism. They had to sneak this former Catholic deacon into the Muslim lands, because what do the Muslims know of a, of a Christian converts to Judaism? They don't care. And on the contrary, it's probably in Islamic thought a little bit better, not much, and they thought, but nothing, definitely not a crime. But he now said, Agrobart, look at the Jews. If we let them in, their, in our land, we're going to cause conversion. Their, 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 their promise is causing people to convert to um, Judaism. This theme would exacerbate over time. And without going into French history, after Louis the Fair, there was a civil war. And France, Gaul, and Germany actually split at that point. That's, it's in the 9th century with the Treaty of Verdun when the empire of the Franks breaks up into three kingdoms that France and Germany get permanently separated. They would be many times tried to be united through war. <laughs> Sometimes the French who win under Napoleon and other times like Hitler and Rahman al-Islam, the Germans who win. But that would be the last time they would truly be one country was in 843 when it split. France would continually become more acidic for the Jews. Right? Because of the clergy constantly raising the fire against the Jews. So northern and central France will continually <coughs> to become really, really a dangerous situation until they get expelled under Philip the Fair. We will discuss that and we'll discuss southern France, Provence, where, not today, a different lecture, where the Jews actually had a relative tranquility. However, Germany did not follow the path. There were many Jews in Germany in the 4th century, and we're inspiring minds. In Cologne, we have literature from Jews in 321 already, and the Germans continued the path of Louis the Fair and Charlemagne following the Moors and figured that if the Jews are here, it's good for our economy. So much so that, if, that a bishop in the mid-10th century, mid-11th century said that look at how the Jews built up spires. Appreciating the financial benefit, boon, of having these Jewish merchants and having these Jews involved in the economy as the middle class at the time. That would change with the Crusades. Of course, we know spires is one of the cities that was destroyed. It's important to note that although there were many knights involved in the Crusades, the, the pillaging and murdering of the Jews 
was not by the knights. It was by the riffraffs who joined them. It was the lower classes. And we'll discuss it when we discuss the Crusades. But they, this bottom society would wipe out that reality um, in Germany. How did France and Germany develop a Torah center? We discussed how Spain became a Torah center. How did France and Germany become the Torah center that would evolve to have Rashi, evolve to have Tosis, evolve to build up all the yeshivas today, study the Torah of France and Germany? Right? How did, where did that start from? How did that develop? Reb Shlomo Luria, the famous 16th century sage in Krakow, and other scholars claim that Charlemagne himself invited the great Italian Talmudists, because we discussed last lecture that Italy had a Torah center, Ramosha Hazakin and his son Colonimus. Colonimus. The Colonimus family from the 9th to 13th century would be overwhelmingly dominant in German life. They would be the family that would provide the rabbis, the preachers, the scholars, the sofrim. They would be the family that would lead Germany through the Crusades and help them rebuild after the Crusades. They were famous because of some of the descendants were called the Hasidi Ashkenaz. Most famous of them was the Behuda HaChassid, who wrote Sefer Hasidim, which is a very esoteric book discussing a lot of the, the like for example, the Minog, not to name, to marry somebody who has your father's name or your mother's name, not to marry a girl who has your mother's name. That starts in Sefer Hasidim. A lot of other things that we do start in Sefer Hasidim. This all comes from this Kalonimus family. They were, um, they really built up uh, German Jewry and they started to have yeshivas because of them. If you want to get a picture who they were, look at source number one. Now, source number one was written by one of their famous descendants, Elazar of Worms. Now, they would spread out not only into Germany, but into France as well. Elazar from Worms, who was um, also known by his work, the Rokeach. And Rokeach will become a famous Jewish last name. The Belzer Rebbe, I think you saw I had a magazine with the Rebbe of Bells, is a Rokeach. They took that last name from Rabbi Elazar of Worms, who was a clonimus. Source number one was he was writing, he was furious that sages in England and France were changing the liturgy different than his family. So he wants to prove his lineage. So we'll just look at a little bit um, in the black. And I also received it from Judah and Chassi. He's talking about the liturgy, the, 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 how the sitter should be. And I also received it from Judah HaChassid, as he received it from his father, Rabbi Shmuel HaChassid, as he received it from Rabbi Elazar HaChazan of Spire, for when Rabbi Kolonimus died, his son Shmuel HaChassid was only a boy, so he gave it to Rabbi Elazar HaZan of Spire. And when the Rabbi Shmuel HaChassid grew up, he received, look at this word, the secrets from him. And he was ordered by Rabbi Kolonimus the Elder. They all received the secret of the two true version of the prayers, teacher from teacher up to Abu Aaron, the son of Shmuel Nasi, who came from Babylonia because of a misadventure and had to wander from place to place as a punishment until he came to the country of Lombardy to a city called Luka. Luka, that's where Shalomim brought in the Colonimus family from, where he found Rabbi Moses, son of Colonimus, who wrote the Piet, wrote the, the Piet Emat Narasakha, Emat Narasakha, which is one of the literature we say, 
And he, Abu Aaron, transmitted to him all the secrets. And he continues on. The interesting thing, and this is what a lot of people discuss, I will discuss Kabbalah um, probably when we do the 17th, 16th century, we talk about the, the Arizal, is people assume one of the things that he's referring to is not only the secrets of the liturgy, but that the Kolonimus family was known to be a Kabbalistic family. And they were one of the families that had the tradition of the Zohar. So this is way before the Zohar became revealed to the masses. They were passing on secrets. We will discuss at length what these secrets are. The Kolonimus family would be the teachers of the first great, well-known German sage. His name was Rabbeinu <coughs> Gershom. Rabbeinu Gershom was called Rabbeinu Gershom Moor Hagola, the light of the diaspora. If you look in the Talmud, you'll find the commentary of Rabbeinu Gershom. Rabbeinu Gershom made Mainz into a set, set city of Torah. He became the first international Western European sage who people from the entire world, from North Africa to Spain to Babylonia, communicated with. That was Rabbeinu Gershon. He put Germany and thus France on the Torah map. Rabbeinu Gershon was famous for his making, um, codifying certain parts of the time, making sure that the, the, the gears of the versions were correct for his, um, his um, commentary on the Talmud. He was also, unfortunately, famous for sitting Shiva, mourning for his son for two weeks. And 10, 12 minds had one of these times where once again the option was given the cross, your life, or expulsion. He had a son who chose the cross. And he not only sat Kaddish for one week, which not sat mourning for one week of Shiva, which was a typical thing, he sat mourning for two weeks. And he said, one for this world and one for the next. Okay? Nevertheless, Rabbeinu Gershom was, because of this, or despite of this, one of his famous edicts, bans, was about being too difficult on Jews who were forcibly converted and then wanted to return, which we will see when we discuss the Spanish Inquisition, was a, unfortunately a very common phenomenon. So he said, usually the old thing is somebody converted. You know, we think that conversion is, a guy puts a sword to your head, you have no choice. The reality is you do have a choice. Right? If you think about it, there are many millions of Jews over history who gave up their lives rather than choose the cross. Many millions of Jews, okay, who died rather than choose the cross. Nevertheless, I mean, it, it doesn't take a genius to, to, to realize that it's, a, that it's an overwhelming choice. And what Rabbeinu Gershon said, that even though in a sense, you were breaking the cardinal rules of the Torah by, by following a different religion, by giving up your Judaism ostensibly. One of the three cardinal rules which necessitates giving up your life. But because it's such a difficult choice, you had such, under such duress, such a person should not only be taken back, but welcome back. Don't push such a person away. You know, I, I, you always look at today. We live in a world where you want to push people away who mess up. Oh, no, I, I've said this when Bernard Madoff messed up. No one wants to see him do tshuva. 
you talk people about Burma, they want him to rot. <laughs> they want him to sit in jail and suffer. And they want everyone like that to sit in jail and suffer. That's how people talk. They, they, they don't want to be redeemed. No one wants to be redeemed. Well, if your sons and daughters gave up their lives and your neighbor acted like a Catholic and lived a good life, right? You weren't so going to be so friendly to the guy who did that. Here, my children gave up their lives. You come back uh, three years later when the coast is clear and says, Kai and Aliyah Chol. I don't have. I want to have Shlishi. Give me Maftir. I'm a tzaddik. I'm, I'm coming back. What do you mean you're coming back? You, you, you acted like a Catholic. I saw you going to church. You want to come back? And, and, the, and the normal tendency is to not be welcoming such a people. I mean, the Gershom says someone sincerely, sincerely, sincerely wants to come back. You have to welcome. He's famous for other bands. His most famous band was the ban on polygamy. Rabbi Gershon banned polygamy. In the, 11th, in, the, in the early 11th century, Rabbi Gershon said it was completely forbidden to have more than one wife. That was in a time where it was accepted. And he explained that it is, although it was rare, and it, it did occur in people of the time, these were great people who were able to fill all obligations to one. Today, it is impossible and he therefore banned polygamy. It's a question of how long he banned it for, but the overwhelming consensus of Ashkenazic poskim is that it is eternally, ban- eternally banned till the Messiah. Um, he also prohibited divorcing a woman against her will. Okay? There is no such thing as no-fault divorce against your will in Judaism. A woman has to consent to get divorced, and obviously a man does. A man has to give it again. So both have to consent for divorce. This has a lot of ramifications. Rabbeinu Gershom, and you have to remember, this is when the Jewish traders forbade reading of private mail, which meant if you had a Jew take a piece of mail from a Jew in Damascus to a Jew in Mainz, you couldn't open it. It could be months on the, on the way. Very, you know, I don't think Julian Assange could probably control himself. Uh, he wouldn't like WikiLeaks too much, but he, for, he, for, he forbade he forbade reading people's mail I, on the strictest terms, and it was a curse to read someone's mail. This not only created trust, but it was also good for the Jewish economy because you had a very strong system of trust. I, it became completely forbidden to read or look at somebody's mail. I imagine he didn't discuss it. That would apply to email today um, as well. This sets the stage for the eminent sage, scholar of the Middle Ages, and that is Rashi. Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki. Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, Rashi would be a student of students of Rabbi Rabbeinu Gershom. By the time Rashi came of age, there have been yeshivas for decades in Germany and France. Rashi, who literally means Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, Rabbi Shlomo, the son of Yitzchak, that's, is also called Rashi, Rabin Shel Yisrael, the teacher of all of Israel. Okay? In his own life, they used to say, Rashi, Rabbeinu Sheyichya, our, our teacher who should live. Rashi is the teacher of all of the Jewish people. Sephardic, Ashkenazic, <laughs> it doesn't make a difference. The Talmud would be a closed book without Rashi. 
Rashi is the one who makes the Talmud available to the entire Jewish people. He is the one who makes the Bible uh, explainable to the entire Jewish people, as we'll see. Rashi was an only child born in, in Troyes in Champagne in northern France. His mother's, his uncle from his mother's side was Shimon Hazakin, who was the, the chief rabbi of Mainz. Shimon was a direct student of Rabbeinu Gershon. Um, and, and, Rabbein, and Shimon, uh, 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 Shimon was a disciple of Rabbeinu Gershon. Rabbeinu Gershon died the year that Rashi was born. This fits a famous Talmudic concept that when the sun sets on one great Jewish leader, it rises for another. That the year that Rabbeinu Gershon dies is the year that Rashi is born. That the Torah is eternal, as we've been discussing. Right? The Torah, even under all, we'll, and we'll discuss the next lecture, when we discuss crusades, blood libels, black play. I mean, you, you, if you were a sociologist, if you were a gambling man, the odds would have been one in a, one, not even one in a million. You look around, this is not going to survive. Right? Not materially and certainly not spiritually. The Jewish people are here always. If you look at it throughout the Bible, through the Talmud, through our own time, because of our rabbis, because of our leaders. And Rashi would be the leader of the Jewish people, right, through to our day. We cannot, we would not be here in Torah study if it were not for Rashi. On his father's side, Rashi was a 33rd generation descendant of Rabbi Yochanan Hasalmer, who was a descendant of Gamliel the Elder, who came from the house of David. So Rashi is a direct descendant on his father's side from the house of David. Considering a large percentage of Ashkenazic Jewry are descendants of Rashi, okay, a very large percentage, some say up to 25% have Rashi's blood, that makes many people potential to be Mashiach. Because <laughs> they're all coming from the house of David, right? Rashi, right? Rashi um, comes from the house of David. There are many legends about Rashi's birth. The first and most famous legends about Rashi's birth um, is that when his father, who was a vintner, now, I'm sorry to say, Binyamin, against popular opinion, and, and I don't want to hurt the wine, there is no proof that Rashi himself was a vintner. That Rashi himself was a winemaker. Well, one of the reasons people presuppose that Rashi was a vintner is because he had such a knowledge about wines. When you read the responsa of Rashi, when you look at the commentary of Rashi, he was completely fluent in the winemaking process. He lived in Champagne and his father was a vintner. That's why people presuppose that Rashi was a vintner. But there is zero proof of that. And no, there is not one piece of literature that says that. And there is no actual, you know, reason to assume that because we know it was a Rosh Hashiva. Okay, there is no real proof of that fact. Although there are those that contend that. And it's possible he was. I'm not saying that he wasn't, but there's no actual proof of that. But his father was a vintner. His father was a winemaker. A very poor winemaker. Right? There were rich winemakers in in France. I don't want any potential winemakers. There, there may be that. Uh, uh, there is always a potential there. But Rashi's father is not one of them, and he lives a tough life. One day he found a jewel, and it was a precious jewel, and he was traveling to sell the jewel 
um, in, 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 I think it was in to London, I'm not sure where it was, in an area which was not yet, um, had not yet become uh, under the Catholic domain in, in, in Rashi's father's time. Um, much of England, actually, and certainly the Nordic countries were not yet Christian. So he's going to an area to sell the jewel at a higher price. And on the way, he's on the boat, and some, you know, to travel, even in those days, if you were traveling far, many of the people were royal officials. They say, we want this for our king. Now, some Jewish vintners going to this country, and they say they want it for the king. You don't have that much of a choice. He says, okay, but what do you want it for? You know, how much are you going to offer for? We'll offer you whatever you want. We'll give you a fantastic, fabulous price. He says, what do you, for, for what? See, they told him, we want to use it as one of the jewels in the idol of the king. So, when Rashi heard, his fathers heard this, became petrified. He's going to sell his jewel, be part of an idol. So, on the boat ride, he, by mistake, dropped this jewel into the sea. So the legend says that Eliyahu Hanavi came to him and told him that because you gave up a jewel, God will bless you with a jewel with a son called Rashi. Okay, that's legend number one. Now legend number two, and I, you just, by the way, I just understand, if you just, you have to remember, Rashi, when you talk about the greatness of Rashi, which we'll embellish on in a minute, Rashi lived before the printing press, when if you ever look um, at ancient manuscripts, the, 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 how meticulous Rashi's how the writing was, how careful. I can't imagine a human being staying up 24 hours a day for 50 years writing just without thinking the, the volumes of works that Rashi wrote. I mean, he had dozens of works before the printing press, made they write by hand, and he hand wrote these materials on 30 plus volumes of Talmud, <laughs> on all 24 books of the Bible. I mean, you have, the Matthew just wrote, you're talking about a jewel, it's, it's an understatement. The other legend about Rashi, legend, is that his mother was walking in an alleyway in Troy's, uh, in, in, in Worms, actually, where he was, in Worms, when she was still pregnant. And, in, you know, if anyone, anyone goes in Measharim or in Jerusalem, sometimes you have to be a very talented driver. Maybe to go, if you go up to Benjamin's house, take that one-way road, very little space to get somewhere. Well, it was between two alleys in, 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 in Worms, and a carriage was coming, speeding ahead, and she had nowhere to, to move. And she was pregnant at the time, and she was a goner. And she backed into the wall, and the legend says that the wall opened for her to go in. That's legend number two. The legends, true or not, it's because of the persona, because of the fame of Rashi. Rashi is this greater-than-life figure who, 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 who really metamorphoses all of Tom Nixon. He does the impossible for Torah study as a whole. I mean, you really have to imagine, without any tools, the depth of Rashi is unbelievable. The amount that he wrote with a quill, it's mind-boggling. It's purely, it's surely mind-boggling. In an age where 1% of Europe was literate, he wrote dozens and dozens and dozens of books with quills at a, at a higher level of Torah than any of us in our generation could even imagine. Rashi was first learned Torah by his father at the age of five on Shavuos. He learned with his father for the first time 
to studying. His father taught him to the age of 17. At 17, Rashi got married. Okay, at the end, and what was his marriage like? He went to yeshiva. In yeshiva, I didn't mean he came home at night. He went to yeshiva in a different town and came home three times a year. Came home, the Yom Shavuos, and Pesach. And that was it. Okay? He was maybe two months a year at his house, ten months a year in the yeshiva, first in Worms and later in Mainz. And he, again, he learned from the students of Rabbeinu Gershom. And Rashi's works begin in the yeshiva. When he gets to Mainz, for example, they, the yeshiva had existed for 65 years. There was already something called a kuntras, the notebooks of Mainz. You know, I mentioned the, how rare it was to have books. Books were very, very rare. It was painstaking work to write books. I remember um, the Catholic Church actually has from the better libraries of Judaica in the world because they pillaged and stole over the generations so many of the Jewish works and the Crusades and the expulsions. So I, when I was maybe 15 years old, I remember when I was in Florida, they, they, had, they took some, some of the, these works and they traveled around and you would see Rambams, Maimonides from the 13th century, Rashis from the 11th century. And it wasn't just the words, it was the way it was written. It was, it was mind-boggling. It was, it was exquisite. Parenthetically, uh, in, the, in the 20th century, we actually had works that were lost from Judaism, which we knew about, which we got back from the Catholic Church, like the Me'iri, like the Avram Minahar, Avram Mimantipilar, Montipilar. These works were gone from history. We knew they existed. And the Catholic Church actually had copies of them, which we scanned in, in the 20th uh, century. So Rashi took these notebooks because what happened was there was not a Talmud for every student in the yeshiva. There was one Talmud for 25 students. They used to pass out smaller notebooks. Rashi started writing what's called a kuntras, a notebook. One of the names for Rashi's commentary is, on the Talmud is kuntras, notebooks, because Rashi starts his commentary as his notes in class. Okay, Rashi develops, becomes a Rosh Yeshiva um, at the age of, tw- of 25, and by 1070 is a very large um, Yeshiva. Okay, ultimately Rashi would continue. The Yeshiva suffered in some of the students in 1096 with the Crusades. We'll wait to the Crusades. Let's discuss Rashi's works. Look at source number two. Source number two is the great late 12th century Spanish sage, Rabbi Avram ben David, the Rived, in his Sefer HaKabbalah. Okay? This is in the 12th century, but 120 years after Rashi, Spanish sage, Sephardic, says as follows. In France, a great light shone forth like never was envisioned by the eye before. He is the great Rav, the Chassid, Rabbeinu Shlomo of Troyes, the son of Rabbi Yitzhak. He explained the whole Torah, the whole Nevi'im prophets, the whole Ksun, the whole scriptures, and the four starim of the Talmud of Gemara, so that the reader can go through them quickly. He did not leave out anything small or large that he did not fully explain. After his commentaries went out to the world, there was not a Rav or Galo great Torah sage who studied Halacha without them. 
everyone after him drinks from his waters. Look at source number three, because this will be on his commentary on the Bible. This is the Chidah, famous bibliophile, halachic sage, head of Sephardic Jewry in the late 18th century, sage from Jerusalem. Apparently Rashi wrote his commentary talking about uh, his biblical commentary based on the secrets of the Torah and therefore, before beginning, he fasted for 613 days corresponding to the number of mitzvahs in the Torah. His commentary seems to deal only with a simple meaning but his words contain supernal hints. Source number four, great 16th century sage in Krakow, Mordechai Yafi, all of Rashi's words have a revealed and hidden meaning, and both are true. Rashi's commentary on the Tanakh, especially on the five books of Moses, is essential for companion for the study of Talmud at any le- level. Rashi not only explains a simple meaning, he brings in all of the Talmudic explanations, all the Medrash explanations. His nuance on the words are breathtaking are mind-boggling. It opens the text. I mentioned once a story of a bibliophile about 25 years ago in England. I was in Cambridge, who was who who who, who learned Rashi script. One of the reasons why is because many of the graves in Europe use Rashi script. So once he learned Rashi script, he opened Rashi. This was before. This is before. Um, Art School came around. <laughs> now, now it's not that difficult. You can go to artschool.com and order it online. In those days, this you know Anglican bibliophile learned Rashi, and as a result of going through Bible and Rashi, he had so many questions. Converted. I mean, it literally changed his whole per- per- uh, perception of the Bible. Rashi's commentary. Listen to the words of the first Lubavitch Rebbe, the Baal Hatanya, who said as follows: that Rashi's commentary on the Torah is the wine of Torah. It opens the heart and uncovers one's essential love and fear of God. So you could say Rashi was a vintner. He did create a beautiful wine. That was his commentary on the Torah. Rashi's grandson, the great Rabbeinu Tam, who we'll discuss, said, I could have written my grandfather's commentary to the Talmud, but his commentary to the Bible is something unique. Rashi is what a little kindergarten student learns to the most advanced Talmudic scholars as well. It takes a person from beginning to end through Tanakh, through the Bible. It gives a person the depth of it. Especially if you learn scripture, there are very difficult passages which you cannot understand if not for Rashi cross-referencing many of the Midrash and many of the passages of Talmud and explaining it in the verses. So popular did Rashi become, and there is no regular Chumash that's made today without Rashi, okay? But not only that, that there's actually an obligation called Shnayim Mikra of Echatargum to go through the Parsha every week with a commentary. Historically, that commentary was the Targum was Unklas. Already by the 13th century, Rabbeinu Usher, the famous sage, sage from Germany and later Toledo, Spain, said, you can study Rashi as well. Rashi became so accepted that tens of thousands of people a week study Rashi's commentary. Now, one of the funny things that everyone knows of Rashi's script. You go to day school or yeshiva or you start later in life and you open up 
any text, there's a special Rashi script. It doesn't look like a normal Hebrew bold letter script. It's a cursive, different type of Hebrew script. It's called Rashi script. So the whole world presupposes that Rashi wrote in the script. That is a fallacy. Rashi never wrote in that script. Rashi's script starts in the late 15th century with the beginning of the printing press, with the Sansino family, with Daniel Bomberg, who was one of the translators, and Abraham Garden, who was the first one to translate Rashi, in order to distinguish, because Rashi was such a prolific writer, <laughs> he was on every text, in order to distinguish Rashi from the text, they used a semi-cursive Svartic script, and they called it Rashi script. So from that point on, it became known as Rashi script. Rashi himself never wrote it. It's commentary to the Talmud. Look at source number five. Before Rabbeinu Shlomo, the great explorer, this is from the 14th century sage, Rabbeinu Menachem and Aram and Zarach in his Sefer Tzayda Lederach. It's a 14th century sage. Before Rabbeinu Shlomo, the great explorer from the city of Troyes, they learned the commentaries of Rabbeinu Gershon, which were very long. Ruach HaKosh, Divine Spirit, rested on Rabbi Shlomo. Were it not for Rashi, the way of the Babylonian Talmud would have been forgotten in Israel. If Rashi on the Bible is important and essential, Rashi's commentary on Talmud is, it would be unimaginable to learn the Talmud without, without, without Rashi. It would be a closed book. There are other very worthy commentaries. Nachmanides has a classic commentary, not Rashi. The Ibn Ezra, the 11th century Spanish sage, has a famous commentary. There are many, there are dozens of commentaries on, on, on the Bible. Rashi is the most important. But it would still be an open book. Without Rashi, you wouldn't know where to stop on the passage. You wouldn't, it would be that extremely difficult. Rashi takes your hand through Talmud and says, stop here, go forth here, ask a question here. Right? Rashi also clarifies the text of the Talmud. There's a question of how the word should be pronounced. This is how the word is pronounced. Rashi's commentary covers almost the entire Babylonian Talmud. 30 of the 35 tractates. Five tractates he did not finish. means he went through it once, twice, but he was not finally edited. So his students or his son-in-law, for example, Amakas, and on the 19th blot, it says, Rabbi Huda ben Nathan, Nathan, his son now will continue the commentary. And that's his, his son-in-law. Rashi has over 300 responsa by different students. One of the interesting things that Rashi is known for in a secular world, Rashi is a very well-known figure for historians, for one of the reasons is because of his loaze Rashi. Rashi has old French. Very often, what Rashi does is he explains a concept in his day and throws in the old French word for it. So you're always seeing Rashi referring to old French. Well, this is invaluable because there are 3,000 translations that Rashi gives the Hebrew translation and the old French translation. So if anyone's into... Remember, France was illiterate. <laughs> you have very little, little literature from old French. And you have very, very... Here Rashi translates 3,000 words and explains it to old French. So people who study French literature and French linguistics all have to know Rashi because he is the source for a lot of that. Rashi's legacy, I mean, it's almost incomprehensible. Any student of Torah, 
anyone who goes to even the most rudimentary yeshiva, the first person you learn after the 24 books is Rashi. Right? Rashi is our kindergarten teacher. And you start Rashi, I remember as a kindergarten, I was learning Chumash. Rashi says so and so, and he starts explaining this. And when you get older, I was just learning something in the Talmud and Nida, Chak and Nida. I spent days on a Rashi. Just last week. I spent days trying to figure out what Rashi meant in the, in, in the Talmudic flow. In Rashi not only is our kindergarten teacher, he's giving us our master's degrees, he's giving us our PhDs as well. Because with an advanced Talmudic scholar, you realize that Rashi is not just saying this simple explanation. He's explaining the multiple levels on a much, much higher level. All of Torah study becomes due to Rashi. Look at source number six. This is from the interlinear translation of the Talmud by the Schoenstein edition. When they're explaining how they used the art scroll Talmud, which was, you know, a breathtaking one. You know, the art scroll Talmud is, you know, it's not only in the, the Vatican, obviously, has a few copies. It's known that they ordered it from art scroll and Cambridge and Oxford. But it's in every Jewish house. I mean, how are you going to explain the Talmud, right? They, I mean, we all know there are multiple levels. Look what they, look, this is how they, they, the translation. It has been our policy throughout the Shadistine edition of the Talmud to give Rashi's interpretation as the primary explanation of the Gemara. Since it is not possible in a work of this nature to do justice to all of the Rishonim, to all of the early commentators, we have chosen to follow the commentary most learned by pe- the people and the one studied first by virtually all Torah scholars. In this we have followed the ways of our teachers and the Torah masters of the last 900 years who have assigned a pride of place to Rashi's commentary and made it a point of departure for all other commentaries. There are over, on, the, on Rashi's commentary on the Bible itself, there are over 300 super commentaries. Now when I say super commentary, I'm not talking about any modern scholar. Super commentaries like the Maralmi Prague, Behuda Lowy of Prague, who if you go to Prague today, a friend, friend of Copernicus, right, says you are all the time. He comment, has a commentary on Rashi. I'm talking about the Marshal of Shlomo Luria, the great 16th century sage, who wrote, who wrote an old Talmud, has a commentary on Rashi's Bible commentary. I'm talking about Rabbi Lazar Mizrahi, the great 14, 15th century Spanish sage. Rashi's commentary is essential to all. It is also, interestingly enough, Nicholas Delirio, who Luther uses almost exclusively, this is one of the ironies of, you know, of the world, Nicholas Delirio was called the ape of Solomon. <laughs> Nicholas Delirio, who was one of the foremost Franciscan friars who had commentaries on the Bible, who Luther almost exclusively uses, was called the ape of Solomon because he so heavily relied on Rashi. It didn't stop him from being an anti-Semite, though. <laughs> like Luther. It didn't stop him from being an actual rabbi anti-Semite who tried to convert the Jews. But he used Rashi's commentary at length. Rashi dies in 1105, right after watching about a quarter of French and German Jewry be wiped out in the Crusades between 1096 and 1098. Jew- Jewish tradition says that when Godfrey de Bouillon went out and left France for his crusade. Rashi was, you know, I remember when I was in law school, 
I used to have people stopping me, you know, you know, your, your brother is making waves, my brother, Matsyao, you know, you know, a popular culture figure, and this Rashi was well known, now everyone knew who Rashi was, okay, Maimonides was well known, these were not people in the dark, right, this was in a, in a religious world, in a scholastic world, right? Rashi was the head of the Jews, he was the head of international Jewry, people knew Rashi, so Godfrey goes to Rashi, and the Crusades is 1096, he's going to Jerusalem, no one knew, knew what it was going to be. And he left, he said, so, you know, with tens of thousands of horsemen and knights, says to Rashi, what's going to happen? Rashi says, you may win, but you'll come back to Troy's with two horses. And Kaffi scoffed at him, he says, if I come back with more than two horses, the first thing I'm doing is I'm coming after you. <laughs> now remember, this is, while, this is while the Crusades are gone in the first crusade spared much of France, but clobbered Germany, clobbered spires and mines, orms. The second crusade would be the opposite almost. It would clobber France and spare Germany, but we'll do that in the next lecture. So Jewish legend says that on Godfrey's return to France, he was left with three horses. And he was going to kill Rashi because he had three horses. And as he came to the gates of Troy's, a brick fell down on the third horse and killed. So he had two horses left as he came in and he left Troy's. That's what Jewish said. Interestingly, Godfrey of Dubouillon, who everyone knows was one of the heads of the First Crusade, no one knows exactly how and when he died. Most historians presuppose he died in the year 1100 for some, at a young age in Jerusalem. That's how the history books have it. Rashi is buried in Troyes. Nobody knows exactly where he's buried. In the middle of Troyes, there is a shin, believe it or not, most people, that was put up about a dozen to, to, to years ago to symbolize Rashi, where they think he was buried. But despite the fact that we have no grave from Rashi, Rashi is buried in every heart of every Torah scholar, wherever they may be. Rashi is also famous for his daughters. Rashi's daughters were married to the greatest scholars, and that's how the house of Rashi continued. Rashi had definitely two, but probably three daughters. His older two daughters, which were most famous, were named Yocheved and Miriam. Yocheved was married to Mer of Ramaport. Mer had four sons, all of them great scholars. The first was the Rivom Yitzchak, who died young, but was quote, quoted proficiously in Tosfus, with the Rivom. He had died with seven orphans at a young age. The second son was the Rashbam. Rashbam's commentary on the Bibles, one of the most famous commentaries. He actually finished the Rashi in Baba Basra, and is an essential in other tractates. He had a third son, Shlomo, grandson from Yocheved Shlomo, who was named after his grandfather who was a grammarian. But his fourth son is Rabbeinu Tam, who was the most famous of all of the Tosuses, which we'll discuss in a minute, um, who was famous. He also, Yochavid, had a daughter named Chana, who uh, married a great scholar. And his Chana is one of the sources for some of the teachings of Rashi. She's quoted as, because she was part, part of this house, she knew exactly what went on. Her son was probably the second most famous Tos, scholar of Tosus called the Rimi Dampier, Rabbeinu Yitzchak. If you look at Tosfos, the Re, Rabbi Yitzchak is quoted hundreds and hundreds of times throughout the Talmud. 
He had, he had, she had another daughter, daughter, daughter married to uh, a Sham Shimshin ben Yosef, who was also a Tosis. His second daughter was married to Yehuda ben Nasan. He f- established Yeshiva as well. There's a third daughter, which may or may not have lived. People say her name was Rachel. She probably did live because there are a couple of proofs. They had a third daughter. One of them, he has a response. Uh, we talked about a daughter. This is who is not Miriam Yochevet, where his daughter, this daughter, lost a valuable ring. Okay, it's actually an interesting response. Uh, tshuva. And Rashi says that even though the Talmud says that if a, a cotton, a, a child, damages something, the child's not liable and the parent's not liable. Happens to be, that's liable in this world. And the Talmud says that if the child gets older, they should ideally pay it back. But Rashi says, of course I'm going to pay it back. But really a child in Jewish law, in theory, if it's not, if the parent doesn't, if the parent's not there, the parent is responsible for the child, the child's out and about, and the parent and it by mistake does something, the child's not liable for acts of mistake. And Rashi says, I of course paid back for this ring, of this little girl. Well, his older, his girl, his older two girls were, were married already, so this, that's one of the proofs he had a third daughter. There are lots of legends about Rashi's daughters, okay? The most well-known and the most likely to be true is that they were very, very learned in Torah. <laughs> they grew up in houses filled with Torah study, okay? The Shiboli Leket says that there were times when Rashi was writing and he got tired and he asked his daughters to write down from. Now remember, you're talking about an age where less than 1% of Europe was literate. His daughters are writing down complex Torah things and Rashi dictating it to them. They were Torah scholars. There's one legend, hard to believe, that they, that they wrote, that Nadarim is the one tractate which no one knows who finished it for Rashi, that his daughters re- did that. There's actually no proof. The other famous legend of his daughters is that they wore tefillin. Right? I, you know, Rashi's daughters wore tefillin. Happens to be the, sh- the Shulchan Aruch codifies that girls do not wear tefillin. It's against a breach of contemporary Jewish law. Um, but there were unquestionably ladies who did wear tefillin hundreds of thousands of years ago because there were commentaries who discuss it. Rabino Tom himself feels that it will be permissible. Okay, That opinion is not accepted in halacha. It's beyond the scope to discuss the laws of tefillin for ladies. But Rabino Tom felt this way. So what do people say? Rabbi Tom held women who wore tefillin. Rashi's daughters were very learned. They were women who wore that age. That equals Rashi's daughters must have wore tefillin. There's actually no proof for that. It's hypothesis. That's one of the legends that they wore tefillin. These sons and grandsons developed the school called Tosfus. If you know, if you look at any Talmud, if you look at the inside of the margin, wherever you're going to be, on the, right? The inside of the margin, on the side of the Talmud, is always Rashi, and the outside of the margin is going to be Tosus. You have, facing the, 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 the margin is Rashi, then the Talmud, then Tosus. And all Shas, that's how it is. Tosus were from the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, and the students, and the, their students, who developed Rashi's commentary, and took it a stage further. Tosus analyzed not only Rashi, how Rashi interfaces with the rest of Talmud and with the rest of Medrash, but the text itself. And they really built upon it. Tosus literally means additions. I mean, they added on to Rashi. But what Tosus really is, they created a whole new entity of Talmudic analysis. Any student of Talmud knows 
that if you want to sharpen your mind, you start learning Taisus. Because you can learn the, the Talmud at one level, but once you're in the Talmud, you do the Sea of Talmud, you can start cross-referencing, well, how's, if this is true on this page, on this folio of Talmud, how does that make sense? And guess what? Then you learn a different Talmud, and you say, how does this make sense? And the, it will always overlap, and Tosus is there trying to work all of this out. Tosus, the school of Tosus, goes for 200 years. Now, you know, I remember, you know, when I came to law school, they were very into the Socratic method, and they were very proud of it, and, you know, of, of levels of understanding a text. And I, and I have to be honest, I mean, it was very simple. When you, <laughs> you know, for somebody who came out of yeshiva, the level of Talmudic understanding was a much, much, much higher level and scope of depth. And Tosa is going to take you and cross-reference all of Talmud, and the levels of multiple hair-splitting of Tosa is, is breathtaking. Right? This, these schools went on for 200 years, primarily in France and Germany, but there were Tosas in Spain and England as well. Ultimately, I'm not going to go through the whole history of Tosas, Tosas beca- ends in the 13th century, late 13th century, with the crushing of, sp- of, of parts of Spanish Jewry, but more the point of French Jewry, when they were expelled, where German Jewry was under t- tremendous duress, when you had German scholars fleeing in all directions, to the south, to Spain, and that's how Poland and Lithuania would start to be developed. They were forcibly closed, like the Jerusalem Talmud we discussed with the conversion of Constantine, Tosus' school closes to a large extent. I can give a whole lesson just on who the Baal Tosus are, but I want to pick one, and that is Rabbeinu Tam. There are there literally dozens of famous Baal Tosus, famous scholars of Tosus. Rabbeinu Tam was the leading Tosfus. He was a grandson of Rashi. He was not only a great, great Torah scholar, the leader of the generation, he was a very affluent individual. He was a moneylender. He had a house of 40 rooms <laughs> in the 12th century. Okay, he, I mean, there's no question, he was an extraordinarily wealthy person. He knew all the nobility, and when we discussed the Crusades, he actually was attacked during the Second Crusade, was stabbed five times, almost killed, but one of his noble knight friends saved his life. Okay? Minatam was a strong leader. He has um, letters to other halachic sages where he doesn't just speak strongly, he threatens to excommunicate them. I mean, if you read his letters, he felt that he was the greatest sage of the generation. He was, it was no holds barred. And he felt he was the bearer of the tradition. Truth be told, he is considered of that age the greatest age. He probably made the greatest impact on Talmudic study, and his traditions are kept down to, to this day. There are two famous halachic disputes that he had with his grandfather, with Rashi. There's a famous legend that when he was a little boy on Rashi's lap, Rashi would very often study with his tefillin on. And he grabbed onto his grandfather's tefillin sitting on his lap. And Rashi chuckled and said, one day he'll argue with me about tefillin. Right? One day he'll argue with me about tefillin. We all know that the main tefillin that we wear are Rashi, but there are certain Hasidic Jews that wear Rabbi Tam as well. Everyone wears Rashi tefillin. 
But certain Hasidic Jews, you know, the Baal Shem Tov said everyone should try to wear it. Chabad will all put it on, but all Hasidim put on two pairs of tefillin. They put on Rashi tefillin, Rubeir Tzvan tefillin. There's one difference and only one difference of the two. They have the, the, the boxes are the same, the colors are the same, the letters are the same, everything is the exact same. One difference. And that, in the four scripts that are in there, the four parshas, the four sections of the Bible are the same, but the order of the four are different between Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam. Rashi held one order, and Rabbeinu Tam held another order. And the order is important. Interestingly enough, it's not, this is the Rashi Rabbeinu Tam, it's actually Midrashim going back, and they have historical evidence going hundreds of years before Rabbeinu Tam, okay, um, that are finding both Rashi Tzvillin and Rabbeinu Tam Tzvillin. There's a famous story, I think in the 50s, they found uh, a, a thing of Tzvillin, and they found it before also, and they found like thrown away, and I think they were all Rabbeinu Tam Tzvillin, if I remember correctly. And so, the student people who put on Rabbeinu Tam Tzvillin as well, Rashi said, we have a proof! They wore Rabbeinu Tam Tzvillin! So, you know, the other argument was, not at all! Those are the Tzvillin they threw out! <laughs> That's why they're all, they're all put over there! Those are the, those are the, those are the bad Tzvillin! So, it, it predates them, but it became fi- famous as Rabbeinu Tam versus Rashi. The other famous halakhic dispute between Rabbeinu Tam and his grandfather, Rashi, was that Rabbeinu Tam held that the mezuzah should be um, slanted horizontally, and Rabbeinu Tam uh, Rashi held vertically. So Rabbeinu Tam held horizontal, Rashi held vertical. Ashkenaz jury today puts it on a slant to get both Rabbeinu Tam and Rashi. The reason our mezuzah is slanted in is because Rabbeinu Tam held horizontal, Rashi held vertical. Okay, they held the Svartic Jewry, except for Moroccan, all Svartic Jewry follow Rashi, and the Maimonides hold the same way, and they have it vertical. If you go to a Svartic Jew's house who knows anything about Jewish law, it's supposed to be vertical. Okay, Moroccan Jews, who were close to other parts of Europe, follow the general Ashkenazi custom, which was to put it slanted to get Rabino Tam and Rashi as well. One of the reasons why we, they have the same debate by how a Sefer Torah should be stored in an Aron. Rashi held vertical. Rabbeinu Tam actually held you should put the Sefer Torah flat in the Aron. We try to have it on a little bit of a slant as well. If you look how a Sefer to put, it's not put in a holder. We try to slant it a little bit to get both opinions. Rabbeinu Tam was also a poet. So much so that, remember we discussed Spanish Jewry, how there were poets and there were Grammarians. So in the famous Ibn Ezra, Avram Ibn Ezra met Rabbeinu Tam, he said, have the poets in Spain made their way to France? Because France and Germany went over their Talmudic analysis scholars. The Spaniards were poetic, they were philosophical, which we'll discuss in a moment. But Rabbeinu Tam was multi-talented. He was a true Renaissance man. He, was, uh, he supported Torah. He was a, the leader of the generation. He was known to all the nobility of France they needed a loan, they needed to come to him. <laughs> and he was a very well-known individual. Rabbeinu Tam wrote a Sefer, famous book called Sefer HaYasher. But by the end of Rabbeinu Tam's life, life became extremely difficult for uh, the Jews, so much so that there was a massacre in Blois just a few weeks before he died, and he declared a fast. 
day. That's within the 20th of Sivan, which for generations people fasted on that day um, as well. I would like to have two excursuses at the end of this lecture. The first is, I remember when I was younger. Um, this was many years. I mean, many, many years. I mean, it can't be that many years, but it was many years, right? <laughs> many years back. I, I was sitting in yeshiva with, you know, with my friends, and we're, you know, when you're young, you have silly arguments, and we're discussing who was greater, Rashi or Rambam. Because arguably, those were the two most important sages of the Middle Ages, and really the past thousand years. And I remember, if I remember correctly, I felt the Rambam. I argued that Rama was greater than Rashi, and my, my, I, like, at least four people against me, at least five people, and they went to the, to the Rosh Hashiva, and they said, we, 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 we had like a serious question, who's really bigger, Rashi or the Rama? I mean, he looks at us like, that was a good lesson, to, there's more serious arguments to have, and really couldn't weigh out who's actually greater, Rashi or the Rama. But when you get older, you don't think who's greater, because we can't figure that out. They're both equally great and equally important. But you get, when you get older, you ask yourself, not who's greater, but what's the difference? Rashi and the Rambam had a very, very unique path. And they did a lot of things. In two lectures from now, we'll discuss Maimonides and his life, his works, and his post-life controversy at times and greatness. But for now, I want to just jump to Maimonides to compare and contrast him to Rashi. Rashi's goal in his commentaries was to allow the layman, scholar, and child to have better access to the Chumash and the Talmud. Therefore, if you look at Rashi's commentary throughout, he's constantly explaining words, phrases. The Rambam does nothing of that. The Rambam is most famous. His greatest contribution, getting the guide to the perplexed, which was very important, or his commentary on Mishnah, which is very important. We'll discuss that when we discuss the Maimonides. And he had the first major commentary on Mishnah. But the most famous work of the Rambam, and the thing which all the Jewish people are indebted, is his Mishnah Torah, his Yad HaChazaka, where he systematically codifies all of biblical law, Torah law, contract law, property law, laws of sacrifice. I mean, it is mind-boggling to have a code of Jewish work like this. And the levels of understanding of Maimonides is breathtaking. You have scholars to this day spending weeks on a Rambam. The greatest scholars focus, the focuses of yeshivas, is on Maimonides. The whole brisk and mirror, they focus, what does the Rambam say? How does Maimonides fit with the Talmud? In that Rambam systematically codified all of Jewish law. He was the first one to do it. Because if you learn Tosfus, Tosfus' analysis is unbelievable, but to, to, to know what Tosfus holds about the black letter law of property, you have to Start, I have to look at Tosis here, I have to look at Tosis, I have to like, go fishing to figure, out, to figure out, get a clear picture. The Rambam puts it all together, crystallizes all the Talmud in a systematic way. Part of the reason that Rashi had his path and the Rambam, Maimonides, had his was not merely because of the personality, but it was because of the cultures from where they came. As you know, Rashi really was instrumental in the development of Ashkenazic Jewry, and the Rambam was a product of Spain, later North Africa, of all of the, the Sephardic great Torah scholars. Generally speaking, as a general rule, when you look at all of the Middle Age commentaries, and there are dozens and dozens and hundreds of works, the Sephardic 
commentators looked at the broad picture of Judaism. They looked at the forest and not at the trees. The Ashkenazim were very into the nitty gritty textual analysis. What does this word mean? How does this word make sense? How does this fit? Where the Sephardim were trying to figure out how does this philosophically make sense? Where does this fit into the larger um, picture? Therefore, Rashi's commentary were quintessentially systematic or philosophical intellectual nature, Rambam's commentary, and Rashi takes you by your hand through the Talmud, through the 24 books of Scripture. These differences did not go up in a vacuum. I don't want to rehash things we spoke about previously, but suffice it to say that the Sephardic world, particularly under the Moors in Spain and in, in North Africa, till the Alamahads came, was a very open society. It was the most advanced society of the time. Right? The Jewish people, when they looked at their neighbors in the middle and upper classes in the Sephardic Muslim Moorish world, they looked at them with respect. They had a certain broadness to them, which is why when we discussed the golden age of Spanish Jewry, we talked about their involvement not only in Jewish thought and culture, but in general Spanish and Muslim thought and culture. The Ashkenazic Jew, on the other hand, was living in a Europe, in a Christian Europe, with a 1% literacy rate, where even Charlemagne, who was relatively um, progressive, enlightened for his time, couldn't write his name. They did not look at the nobility who were drunken, you know, low-life knights for the most part, with respect. And they certainly did not look at the peasants around them. They did not appreciate the culture around them, that's clear. They became much more insular, focused on what does the text text, um, say. Um, Christianity, you know, basically ostracized the Ashkenazi Jewry from its life. They became very superstitious, especially after the Black Plagues. Ashkenazi Jewry is very inward bound. They focused on their text and didn't think how it fits on a broader level. Which brings me to my second excursus. That was just a basic difference between Rashi and Rambam, which is important to know. When we learn Rambam, we'll see how the Ma'at's how he learns. And my second excursus, and with this we'll end, is Ashkenazic Jewry itself. You know, I discussed the last lecture, the, the, you know, people ask, what's Sephardic Jewry? What's Ashkenazic Jewry? So I said that the Chalva Slavos, Rabbeinu Bachia, who himself was a Sephardi in Saragossa in the 11th century, so that Ashkenazic Jewry are Jews in Christian lands, Sephardic Jewry are Jews in Muslim lands. That's why even though Sephard means Spain, it just, Sephardic Jewry is not just Spain, most of Yemenite, Persian, Baghdadi, Aleppo, from Syria Jews, never had any connection with Spain. But Sephardic Jews were Jews in the Sephardic, uh, in, in the Muslim lands, whereas Ashkenazi were in um, Christian land. So, the name Ashkenaz originally were given to Jews in Shum, in Spires, Mines, and Magnetia. Italian Jew will be a third group, which eventually will be subsumed under Ashkenazic and Sephardic culture. There will still be a little Italian niche of itself. But what Ashkenaz would start in the Rhineland and would spread 
eastwards into Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, Belarusia, and Russia as Jews were forced out after the Crusades and they took their Yiddish language um, with, with them. In the 11th century, there's a very there's an interesting piece. I wrote an article by Rabbi Daniel Alazar of the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs where he docu- uh, documents that in the 11th century, 3% of world Jewry was Ashkenaz, 97% was Sfard. What does that mean? Ashkenazi Jewry didn't come from nowhere. We, you know, they came from that. But in Christian Europe, there were 3% of, of, of worldwide Jewry. And in Muslim countries, there are 97%. In the mid-17th century, Sephardim still outnumbered Ashkenazim 3 to 2. But by the end of the 18th century, Ashkenazim outnumbered Sephardim 3 to 2. By 1931, 92% of world Jewry was Ashkenazic. Okay? By 1750, America had been majority Ashkenazic. By, by, by 1931, I think 98% of America, United States of America, was Ashkenazic. Post-Holocaust, about 75 to 80% of worldwide Jewry is Ashkenazic. In Israel, it's about a 50-50 split. Where did this world Ashkenaz come from? Ashkenaz, where does, it, where does it mean to be Ashkenaz? Where did the word, the usage of the word come from? Okay. We already find references in the 9th century to Ashkenaz. Remember we read that letter from Chastai ibn Shaprut to the, to the Khazar king? They were already using the terminology of Ashkenaz. Okay? Ashkenaz is actually a word in Tanakh, which is one of the sons of Gomer. It was, was, was a son of Gomer, who was a grandson of Yefet. Gomer, Gomer, in Jewish tradition, is Germany. Gomer would develop to Germany. And you see already by the 9th, 10th, of high goes running to the sages of Ashkenaz, okay? The Machsavitri talks about Ashkenaz. The 13th century, almost every reference to non-Sephardic Jewry is to the Jews of Ashkenaz, whether they were in France or Germany or later other places. By, you know, now, in, you know, sometimes we say in the Nusach of Ashkenaz is all Jewry, but sometimes I refer to the Jews of Germany. That's, in some literature they use it, but Jew, it became the Jews of all Christian uh, country Jews became Ashkenaz because it starts primarily in that Rhineland area. Over time, Ashkenazic and Sephardic Jewry developed very differently because, as we discussed last time, when everyone is in Babylonia, there is no differences, significant differences, cultures and customs. And yes, in the Ashkenazic world, you have, especially the last two centuries with the Hasidic movement and different countries, Hungarians having nuances and and Polish nuances, and Lithuanian nuances, and Russian nuances. In the Sephardic world, the Yemenite Jews have different customs than the Persian Jews, and certainly than the Moroccan Jews, who are very... Moroccan Jews, certain things they have Ashkenazic, believe it or not, because they had a big crossover. They were closest to Europe, and if you're in Morocco, they had a big crossover. The Yemenite Jews were secluded. They, had nothing, they didn't know what Ashkenaz was. They barely had any contact with, the, with these people. Right, but you'll find different country customs in the Sephardic world and Ashkenazi world. But there are fundamental differences in customs, liturgy, 
between Ashkenazim and Sephardim. Certainly Ashkenazim follow um, the Ramah, Moshe Isolis, which we'll discuss, and Sephardim follow the Shulchan Arach. There are no differences in actual commandments or dogmas, anything of the sort, but there are differences in customs. For example, everyone knows on Pesach, you're jealous of the Sephardim. They get to have kidneys, they get to have rice and corn, and we have to get to have potatoes. <laughs> right, we, you know, Svardim never had the custom of kidneys. Ashkenazim, though, we get to have, who, what kind of Ashkenazim have bagels and locks? And cream cheese. We had fish and milk. Many Svardim, going back to the 11th century, don't eat fish and milk together. They can't have locks and cream cheese. Can you imagine a Jew? Can't have locks and cream cheese? Okay? Well, in Persia, they didn't have locks, so they didn't lose out. You know, but they eat their catfish, or whatever, their cat's not kosher. They didn't eat their fish, uh, they didn't eat their fish with, with milk. Okay? The milk in Baghdad and other places, I'm not going to discuss the halakh reasons why, they did not have fish and milk, uh, together. Cautious of meat. There's basios of meat. Okay? They have certain things as far as lesions which are more stringent. On the other hand, they will take out the sciatic nerve much more easily, and therefore, Svartan will eat the back half of a cow, where Ashkenazim will stay away from. Okay, they all had a different malicha process. Um, Ashkenazim put their tefillin on standing, Svartan put their tefillin on sitting. Ashkenazim, this is one of the main differences, pronounce Hebrew, the tufts and the sufs differently, which is the correct way. Even Svartim will admit that. If you look at the, the actual test, we have a Messiah that way. Svartim do not. They have the, they, and the Svartim also mess up on comets and patachs. Everything for them is a patach. They don't know what a comets is. Okay? Uh, unfortunately, Israel took the Svartic pronunciation because you have to remember, who founded Israel? Ashkenazim Jews. You know, Ashkenazim, you know, they're only the most popular, the most troublesome in much levels. You know, secular, every secular movement in the past 300 years and discussed modern contemporary Judaism well Ashkenazim rebelled against their parents when the Zionism movement started it was not just to move to Israel it was a rebellion you know Zionism was overwhelmingly secular and a lot of it were kids who ran away from home and they were running away from Yiddish <laughs> and anything to do with Ashkenazim their parents and the shtetls and they took the Sephardic pronunciation the Sephardim though have a better ayin and aleph they will distinguish ayin and aleph Ashkenazim have no capacity to do that. They do comets katan. Ashkenazim have no capacity. Little fall, you have a little Sephardi blood. You do comets katans. Generally, Ashkenazim do not do comets katans. Atalis. Atalis. Ashkenazim put on a talis when they get married. Except for Chabad. Okay. Ashkenazim put on a talis when they get married. Sephardim put on, actually, I should say, except for Chabad and German Jews. German Jews. Pure German. Yekes. Put on become bar mitzvah. But the vast majority, 90% of Ashkenazi Jewry, put on a talis when they get married. Svarim put on a talis for sure by bar mitzvah, but sometimes even when they're younger to train them in. And another fundamental difference, I'm sorry for all the Svartic ladies, is that in theory, Svartim are still permitted for polygamy. Okay? Uh, they did not accept the ban of Gershon until, you know, the 19th century, there were Svartic communities where the men had more than one ways. I mean, they lived in Arabic countries where this was rampant. It was not common in Sephardic world. I certainly don't think it was common, but it is permitted. Um, I don't think we're anywhere Sephardim live today in the state of Israel, it's not legal. France is not legal. legal. America, it's not legal. Um, and it's certainly not wise 
in our world, in our sight, to even ponder an idea. But in theory, they are permitted in polygamy. And now that until maybe a hundred years ago it was common. And in Yemen to this day, there are individuals with more than one wife. Something Ashkenazic jury has not seen for a thousand years. Ashkenazic Jew also became Ashkenazi is a, a, a way of prayer. Whereas the Sephardic it has a different liturgy. The Sephardic liturgy will take a lot more of the Kabbalah into liturgy. In the Ashkenazic world, though, believe it or not, Nusach Sephard does not mean Sephardic. The Sephardim daven Eidut Mizrach. Nusach Sephard is Hasidim who daven um, with Kabbalistic influences of the Arizal. And there is a fourth one called Nusach Ari, which is what Chabad davens. Okay? Believe it or not, the, the army of Israel davened Nusach Ari. Why is that? Because they didn't want to have to decide between Ashkenaz and the Svarim, so they made nobody happy, and they decided to do Nusach Ari to get out of it. Okay? I mean, maybe 0.2% of the Israeli army actually davened. So they, 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 I mean, most people have siddhars that davened what they want. But the official army in Nusach is that. Interestingly enough, Ashka, name, the last name Ashkenazi are found by almost no Ashkenazim, but by many Sephardi. For me, many, many Syrian Jews, after, you know, Gindi or whatever, last name, my name is, you know, Yosef Ashkenazi, Vladimir Ashkenazi, this Ashkenazi, this Sephardic. Why is that? Because those were descendants of Ashkenazim who moved to Syria or to Baghdad, took on Sephardic customs, but kept the name, last name Ashkenazi, to tell you their roots. The old custom, wherever you moved to, you merged into. You left being an Ashkenazi if you moved to Damascus or Baghdad or to Casablanca, and you left being a Sephardi if you moved to Krakow or Budapest or Odessa. That was how the world was. You know, I discussed, when we discussed the Khazars, the ludicrousness of, you know, I really went through it in detail, of the modern-day anti-Semite Qanar that a lot of Ashkenazim came from the Khazars and these type of things. But I want to just end with this. The interesting thing of it all, when you look at Rashi, look at the way the sages, Sephardic sages, spoke about Rashi and Ashkenazim, or you look at the way that Ashkenazim referred to the Sephardim, going back to when the, the division begins, they never questioned the Jewishness of the Sephardim or the Jewishness of the Ashkenazim. They freely married, and they never questioned the customs. It always was that the Ashkenazim had their customs. If you look at the Shulchan Arach, they'll say, in the European countries they did this. And if you look at the Amal, they say, in the Sephardic countries they did this. It was always one of mutual respect. And that's how Torah is built. And that's how Jewish people will maintain itself. Next lecture will be on the Crusades, the blood libels, and the Black Plague. Thank you. <laughs>